Before I jump into this episode, I just want to let everyone know if you're interested in seeing photos related to the crimes or would like to view a map so you can see just how close all of these homicides occurred to one another, please check out the Facebook page for this podcast at facebook.com slash swansongpod. Also, if you like the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share with a friend. I'm Lauren McCarthy, and you're listening to Swan Song, a true crime podcast. After the series of murders and the attack on Joanne Eggleston in Heritage Hill, residents were terrified. They assumed one serial killer was attacking all of these young women. In June of 1978, Gerald Payne, who was 23 years old at the time, was arrested and charged with the first-degree murder for the death of Linda King. Linda was the social worker who was killed in Heritage Hill in 1975. Her murder was the one that police suspected was not connected to the others, as she was the only African-American victim and there was no evidence of a sexual assault. The arrest came after what police said was a lucky break in the case and didn't elaborate much on what that meant, although they did say an unidentified woman agreed to testify against Payne despite fear of reprisal. Payne was previously a suitor of Linda's younger sister, Patricia, and knew the victim because of that relationship. When Payne was arrested, he was suffering from terminal cancer, and unfortunately, he would not face his day in court as he passed away in August of 1976. Investigators continued to look into the string of unsolved cases. As all good investigators would, they took note of bystanders seen near the crime scenes, at funerals, and at memorials for victims. According to Grand Rapids Police Department, one person kept showing up near the crime scenes in Heritage Hill, a man named Lamont Marshall. Police quickly grew suspicious of him, and it was reported that his own mother went to prison for killing her husband. When police went to Marshall's home to question him, they noticed a banister spindle was missing from the staircase in his home. Remember, a banister spindle was used to bludgeon Ida Mae Lucci and was found near her body in the basement of her Heritage Hill home. In 1982, Marshall was charged with perjury after lying to a grand jury stating he had never seen the banister spindle and investigators had proved it came from his former home. For some reason at that time, police felt they did not have enough evidence to charge Marshall with Ida's homicide. However, they were pleased to know he would be behind bars for the perjury charge, and the homicides did stop after Marshall was in prison. As the early 90s approached, police became anxious as Marshall was scheduled to be released from prison in 1991. In 1990, he was charged with the attack on Joanne Eggleston, 
the victim who was attacked during a nap in her living room after a softball game and was left paralyzed. Joanne was able to identify Lamont Marshall as her attacker in court. The attempted murder charge was brought just one year before the statute of limitations expired on Eggleston's attack. Marshall received a life sentence in prison with the possibility of parole. In 2006, the Kent County Sheriff's Department launched a cold case unit, and in 2008, the detectives took a second look at the evidence from the unsolved homicides. They realized they had a single drop of blood that was collected from Laurel Jean Ellis's tile floor. Luckily, the detectives in 1975 had the foresight to collect and preserve this evidence. During knife attacks, the perpetrator often inadvertently cuts themselves as the knife becomes slippery from the victim's blood as the stabbing occurs. The drop of blood was tested at a Michigan State crime lab and was linked to Lamont Marshall. Marshall was charged with Ellis's murder and the jury took only one hour to find him guilty. He was given life without the possibility of parole. Prosecutor Helen Brinkman said, Evil can wear a human face, and I think we see that here today. Laurel's boyfriend at the time of her death, Carl Novak, who was a prime suspect in her death, was relieved to have been cleared by DNA, but stated about Marshall's sentence, This is not justice. This man did not get what he deserved. A just society would have put this man to death. She was a wonderful girl. She was considerate, kind, thoughtful. The man who could do this to her is not human. Investigators at the time made it clear they believed Lamont Marshall was likely responsible for the unsolved homicides, but they don't have the evidence to bring charges against him. In 2010, investigators discovered a man named Russell Vane was the last known person to see two murder victims before their deaths. Kathy Darling, who was three months pregnant at the time of her death in 1976, and Diane Holloway, a 21-year-old postal worker who was also pregnant when she was murdered on the west side of Grand Rapids in 1979. Kathy Darling's sister-in-law was dating Vane at the time of her death. Vane was allegedly part of a group involved in a fight that occurred at Kathy's house the night she died, and he admitted to police early on that he did return to her house that night, but he denied killing her. Tragically, two months before the death of Diane Holloway, a four-year-old girl told her mother she had been molested by Vane. Her mother reported the incident to police, but they said they didn't have enough evidence to charge Vane with a crime, as it would just be, he said, she said. Russell Vane, then 58 years old, had been living in Alabama since 1980, working as a maintenance man, a roofer, and a gas station attendant. Armed with a warrant from a Kent County court for a DNA sample, an investigator flew to Alabama. The DNA sample was collected, and it matched both cases. 
It's incredibly frustrating to think that if police had taken the alleged sexual assault of the four-year-old seriously, Diane Holloway likely would not have been murdered, as Vane would have been in jail during that time. Diane's mother said her daughter's death crippled the entire family. She had already lost a son in the Vietnam War in 1971. M. Live reported, The slaying destroyed her husband's life, and she believes it contributed to his death from Parkinson's in 1996. The cold case detective said Vane was abused as a child, which likely led him to commit his crimes. As we know, a lot of people are abused as children and grow up to become productive members of society who do not continue the cycle of abuse. The cold case team found that Vane committed 20 rapes, including many family members and his friends' wives. His victims ranged in age from age 4 to 30 years old. Although his wife was reluctant to talk, she did eventually describe suffering horrible beatings and rapes as well. All of Vane's victims were people he knew. Although there was DNA evidence in some of those cases, there were no hits in law enforcement databases as Vane had not been arrested since the 1970s before DNA samples were taken. After being offered a plea bargain to drop some of the charges against Vane, he pled guilty to second-degree murder in both homicides. He was sentenced to life in prison for killing Diane Holloway and received 35 to 90 years for the death of Kathy Darling. There is no doubt that Richard Vane is a vile person, and investigators believe he has more victims out there. For years, Kathy Darling's family believed that Kathy's own mother-in-law killed her while Kathy's husband was in prison because she was angry with her daughter-in-law for seeing another man while her son was serving his sentence. Although there has been justice in a number of these homicides, the cases of Shelley Speet Mills, Barbara Larson, Lois DeRitter, Nancy Sweetman, and Catherine Fingleton remain unsolved to this day. It seems unlikely that Russell Vane is responsible for any of the other homicides, as he only seemed to attack women he knew personally. Lamont Marshall does stand out as a great suspect for some of the unsolved cases, as the attacks were so similar to the crimes he was known to commit. In 2016, there was a documentary made in the hopes of solving Shelley's murder. It's called Heritage Hill Bride, the Murder of Shelley Speet Mills. In this documentary, interviewers asked police about another possible suspect in these murders. In 1991, Richard Jensen Jr., who taught history at Ottawa Hills High School and coached hockey for 22 years, was arrested for the murder of a 23-year-old sex worker named Carrie Mansfield. She was killed in a Grand Rapids church parking lot. Jensen claimed it was a dispute over money. Carrie was stabbed 55 times. Does that sound familiar? At the time of his arrest, police stated Jensen was also a suspect in two sex worker slayings and a pair of sex worker kidnappings in GR. 
A detective said he had a dark side nobody knew about. His students were stunned. One stated, if he did it, it just makes you wonder who else could be a murderer. Another student told the newspaper, he was a really good teacher and a nice guy. I've never seen him lose his temper, even when there were disruptions in class. Although none of the women in the Heritage Hill slayings were sex workers, I still wonder if he could be connected, especially since he was living in the area during the murders and two of the victims were married to teachers. As time progresses and cases go cold, a lot of people lose hope that they will ever be solved. Sometimes time can be a blessing. Witnesses who were scared to make a statement back in the 1970s or 80s may not be scared anymore. DNA and forensic science are making advancements every day that are helping to solve cases that have been cold for decades, so there's always hope. If you have any information that could be of use to investigators, please reach out to the Kent County Sheriff's Office or you can submit a tip anonymously to Crime Stoppers by calling 1-800-773-2587. Please join me next week for a brand new case. Thank you for listening. Thank you.